Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Cotter. He is David Robertson. Hello there. Yeah, and we are um, the co-editors-in-chief of the Religious Studies Project, bringing you an episode about Muslim... Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Cotter. He is David Robertson. Hello there. Yeah, and we are... And the co-editors-in-chief of the Religious Studies Project, bringing you an episode about Muslim dress beyond the headscarf, and with Liz Bukar, conducted by Candice Mixon. Take it away, Candice. So, I'm Candice Mixon, and I'm meeting with Dr. Liz Bukar at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion. And we are in Denver, the floor of the conference center. It's very busy. We are on the floor, and there's not a lot of space, so we found a space to carve out for ourselves. So, Dr. Liz Bukar is an associate professor of philosophy and religion at Northeastern University. She's a religious ethicist who studies sexuality, gender, and moral transformation within Islamic and Christian traditions and communities. She's the author of three books, including the award-winning Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, and that's what we're mainly talking about today. So, thanks so much, Liz, for meeting up with us. To start, can you tell us what Pious Fashion is um, and what brought you to that topic? Yes, so uh, pious fashion is the word that I use in this book to describe clothing that is both religiously coded as Muslims, or trying to be, for women trying to be modest in a certain religious way, given their own interpretation, but also intentionally trying to be fashion forward or with the fashion trends. And it's actually not exactly a topic I came up with. It came out of conversations with the women that I'm actually Mm -hmm. talking to, right? It's really a subject-driven research, like the focus groups I had, the interviews I had with women, that's what they wanted to talk about in terms of modest clothing. And so instead of calling it modest clothing, um, or instead of calling it just, it's not just headscarves, it's really this head-to-toe sort of look um, in these these three locations. Uh, Speaking of the three locations, so your book relates to examples from Iran, Turkey, and Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people out there, that might be sort of a random combination. A little crazy, right? (laughs) Ones that don't immediately have um, commonalities. So I wondered if you could walk us through first just the choices for those three particular countries. Yeah, there's both the... The case study is both kind of out of my own sort of experience in these locations as, and there's also, but there's also like conceptual theoretical reason for it. So in terms of my personal experience, like you, my mm-hmm. initial research in grad school was based in Tehran, right? Mm-hmm. It's based in Iran. So my experience, even though my research wasn't about clothing or material culture in that way at that time, it was part mm-hmm. of my, my experience, if not my research. And I had this moment where I moved directly from Tehran to Istanbul in 2004 and having spent the summer covered suddenly uncovered on the streets of Istanbul. And that was, for me, that was the first time I actually cared about, it was interested in clothing rather in terms of what it did to someone's like character and culture, right? Because I felt really uncomfortable uncovered. Like I'm not Muslim, but still by doing that practice every day, I felt covered the intentional intention to becoming more modest, to becoming more Muslim, but still by doing that every day in, in Iran, I had shifted what I thought was appropriate behavior for myself with men I didn't know, behavior in public, how I should dress. And so that was sort of an interesting moment for me. But it wasn't, I wasn't really interested in the question of fashion until I did other research in Indonesia. And I got there and I was like, oh my God, it looks so different here. And like, Duh. But when I'm surprised <laughs> by things, that's yeah. the kind of the moment where I lean in a yeah. little bit. So like, of course, it looks different there. And it didn't read to me as like modest in the way that it would yeah. in those other locations, I, um, particularly in Tehran or Istanbul, um, because of the local yeah. 
style cultures and the local politics and the local history of, of garb and um, women's clothing and women's dress. And, and so the three case studies kind of come out of my own sort of trajectory, moving through these different spaces, doing other research. But then when I sat down to write the book, I was like, oh, no, no, I'm going to stick with these case studies because we spend so much time, particularly, I think, in the U.S., thinking about the Gulf as the origin yeah. of, of all things, yeah. all things Islamic, much less yeah. clothing, right? And I'm like, oh, I mean, I just wanted to center that. Like, of course, you're going to include Indonesia. That's you know, yeah. the most populous nation in yeah. the world. And it was a great way to have these three case studies. They're all Muslim majority of the cities. Mm-hmm. That was sort of one yeah. baseline for me. Um, and they were all not part of sort of the, the Middle East, the Gulf, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's how those case studies sort of um, emerge. And then also showing the enormous diversity yeah. through those spaces. I mean, I'm really comparativist. So the only thing yeah. that really cuts through all my work that is similar is that I like to have many things on the table at once and find connections yeah. and differences. So I felt much more comfortable and much more could find more things or could understand things more more in depth when I could have more case studies. So I understood more what was going on in Tehran when I started thinking about what was happening in, you know, in Georgia or what was yeah. happening in, in Istanbul. So yeah. It's interesting. I think we've had a similar um, trajectory. I haven't been to Indonesia, but I've spent a lot of time in Turkey and Iran doing my research. And even just going back and forth from those two countries, packing is a nightmare, Mm -hmm. trying to get all the right clothing that makes sense for traveling in very different places. And I'm sure you've had this experience too, where your students will often come to it with monolithic. And so I think something like this really helps them break apart those different cases and how different the fashion and style is in all those countries. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it's, do I think that, am I a little bit annoyed that we are still spending so much time in the conversation about women in Islam talking about clothing? Yes. Like I am also really annoyed by (laughs) that. Um, This is the second book I've written on this topic and this is not where my research started. Right. But I, it's partly in a response to the fact that people still don't understand it and non-Muslims fetishize it and, over-politicize it or, or, or under-politicize it. They think it means more than it does or means less than it does. Mm-hmm. They just don't understand the context of when it's happening. It's either a sign of women's oppression wholesale. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the choice involved or it's a sign of a words and creep of Islam. Oh, it's coming. Look, all the hijabis are coming. Mm-hmm. So it's partly, I think, we keep talking about because there's still so much misunderstanding. The other thing that you just sort of raise is, particularly for my students and for a non-Muslim audience, of which mm-hmm. I'm really interested in and I'm writing primarily for yeah. them, it's a it's a good way into this into thinking about different Muslim communities and Islam that doesn't like sort of start with texts, mm-hmm. right, or political debates. I mean, I get into politics and consumption yeah. and you know but I also get to start with like religious practice that these women there's not a chapter about the Quran in this book. Yeah. Right. And it was actually really hard for me. I've written another book and it has that chapter on the sacred yeah. text, right? I'm like, and I know that stuff and I was like, I have to put that in there. Yeah. But I don't have to put that in there because the women I'm talking to don't start with quoting to me the Quran. They jump right in with like, okay, so that's what this is what it looks like here, and here are the debates that we're having, mm-hmm. and this is the problems, or here are the pressures we're feeling, or here's how I style my head's got. They start right in with yeah. the decisions they're making every day, and you realize that that's where the negotiation yeah. of what accounts to be a good Muslim is happening. It's not happening over fights in the text. Like the women I was talking to, they all agree that particularly these women who are covered. They think that it is their religious duty. They believe it is a religious duty to cover. That's like a given. Yeah. So then the question is, what does that mean? Right. Um, and that is not a, that's not a textual debate, really. Right. It's an everyday practice debate. So it's a way into the religion that actually, right. once you move through, it's sort of like, no, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that. Okay, it's diverse. You can then open it up and have a fuller conversation, yeah. 
either in this book I'm trying to have a fuller conversation or in my students or in public scholarship I'm trying to do about, you know, combating Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism in ways that's trying to meet my audience at a place that they can enter the conversation with me, I guess. Right, yeah. So you mentioned Islamophobia. We talked about that for a second before this. Um, And I am interested in just having you say a little bit more about perhaps how your work, by diversifying, whether it's just the hijab or the impressions of Muslim women and their choices or not choices or their culture, etc., if you see it rubbing against and resisting Islamophobic tendencies a little bit, or if you've seen any reaction like that related to your work, just want to... As soon as you write anything about Muslim women in the veil, you immediately get hate mail, right? Yeah. So especially, <laughs> like, like the first, especially if you do it like to a public audience. So the LA Times piece I wrote yeah. got, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of liberal women telling me, like liberal non-Muslim women telling me I was like doing this terrible disservice to the world of feminism because I was talking about Muslim women fashion, I guess just in a charitable way, right? Like I was just like letting the women speak for themselves yeah. and they were expressing agency and choice. I mean, within structures, of, I mean, not that it's a, f- a completely free choice. No clothing yeah. is like not within happening on a web. Of, you know, I have to wear this right now. It's yes, you have to wear. She, I you, have to. You look really good, <laughs> and you you have to wear that right now um, because we are at the AR, right? So there's all kind. So well, side story. I was told the first time I went to an AR by a senior or faculty member where I was in grad school. I was sort of given like a list of things that are particularly important for women. Mm-hmm. So don't wear aggressive shoes. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing aggressive shoes right now. I'm wearing moderately kids. aggressive yeah, shoes. Yeah, your shoes are not medium aggressive. Medium aggressive. I'm wearing aggressive shoes yeah. right now. Um, <laughs> and not to wear distracting lipstick. Mm-hmm. I was told by a male senior professor, make sure I had more than one suit when I went on a job talk mm-hmm. because women were judged more by their appearance. And on day two, I better show up in a looking suit than day one. Yeah. Another uh, faculty member told me, you know, talking about like hemlines. I mean, so much policing of our yeah. clothing, right? Even like, that's like another whole issue. But probably what this book is trying to get people to think about as well is the own sort of constraints we have. Like, this is not just a Muslim woman problem that yeah. like there is expectations of what you wear. But back to your question about Islamophobia, I do, I have found this an interesting way to begin conversations about sort of yeah. Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism because it's, so the De Young exhibit is a good example in San Francisco mm-hmm. because it's so visual. And so material. So the yeah. Young Museum is like the, um, I'm from Boston, so it's like the MFA of yeah. San Francisco. It's the Modern Art Museum. They have mm-hmm. a, a gorgeous exhibit right now, which is very informed by scholars. They have a scholar board mm-hmm. involved and also a local community board that uh-huh. helped out. So it's very different than something like Heavenly Bodies, right. the Met exhibit, which yeah. was not informed that way. Because the, the clothing there is both stunning and beautiful, but also shows a great diversity. You could have someone who knows nothing about Islam and the Muslim community walk through and come out, it sort of shifts. I think it pushes back against some of the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important because we've had a bunch of surveys lately that have told us that, like, basically, if you know a Muslim, you're less likely to be, yeah. you know, Islamophobic. Yeah. And uh, we also have, like, Pew Forum in 2017 had a piece, uh, survey that came out that said that 50% of Americans do not think that Muslims are part of the mainstream okay. in the U.S. So that somehow Muslims are our yeah. other, outsiders. Out, always yeah. outsiders, right? So you bring someone through this exhibit and you have clothing that is accessible and you have, you know, you have the silly white lady, Christian white lady, you know, it's like, oh, I would wear that. You know, it's not so different. And you have, and then you have sort of pushing back about, wow, it's really like, it's not all a bias and it's not all black. And there mm-hmm. is a diverse, you know, it's yeah. not all black clothing. And there is a diversity of clothing because guess what? There's a diversity in the Muslim community. Yeah. That can be an aha moment for people yeah. or, oh my God, they're not like being forced to wear this by the men or the, you know, the 
ayatollahs in their lives, um, Muslim men in their lives, or the clerics in their lives. Look, there are actually women who are designers who are making uh, a business and a life out of this. Or there are women who are using their clothing for social activism. So the De Young exhibit has really activist uh, wearers and designers as part of it. So like, oh, Muslim women don't need to be saved, right? Yeah. They're like able to use, and uh, the example of clothing, like showing how they are themselves producers and using it in interesting ways. And then again, that mainstream culture thing, like it's everywhere now. And that exhibit kind of, you know, what does it look like at Macy's? And mm-hmm. what does it mean that everyone's yeah, all the wearing- top designers are adding full, you know, modest lines. They're yes. akin to people that are in the Middle East that are often becoming wealthier in countries like Qatar and the UAE and whatnot and trying to they're, also push to that. So yes. that's also interesting. They're trying, so there's partly, okay, so who the designers are yeah. responding to is a certain market, right? They're, yeah. But the truth is, I'm looking at what you're wearing right mm-hmm. now. You're wearing a modest outfit, right? Yeah. So hemlines have gotten longer, right. necklines have gotten higher. There is like sort of mainstream, oh, yeah. mainstream I'm putting my hands up on air yeah. quotes, no one can see that, there's right? There's air but quotes, don't Air we? quotes, mainstream fashion is also, like these are tastemakers. Muslim yeah. women wearers and fashion makers are influencing, they, yeah. I mean, they are part of mainstream culture, they're producing yeah. pop culture. And so if you think about Uniqlo's line or H&M line, yeah. that people are going in and purchasing, not realizing it was originally developed and marketed to Muslim yeah. women, but now it's being marketed as globally sensitive, inclusive, like, you know... It, to be cool and hip and sophisticated is actually to be thinking about ways in which this clothing, uh, if you're like a non-Muslim woman, this clothing actually might appeal to you now is like this cool thing, right? Yeah. This sort of cosmopolitan thing. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. So I think that clothing can be this way, again, into if you really pay attention to it instead of just seeing a headscarf yeah you can you just it's a great way to like open up sort of the complexity of these different communities yeah and then how did you see your work sort of speaking to i mean we've talked about dress and contemporary society and yeah i totally agree things like hemlines are getting longer next hurdlenecks are in again mock necks etc are in right now but what about within gender and religion more broadly? So I know your project is comparative within the Muslim world or within, you know, Iran, Turkey, and Indonesia. But how would you see those discussions kind of fitting in with other discussions of religious clothing, perhaps not just for mainstream America or something like that? Or would you? With, so in particular in the U.S. context? Um, or or, yeah, whichever yeah. one seems to appeal to you. I mean, I think, so there's a, there's a couple of things that I think you're sort of asking me to expand my work out into religious yeah, studies more yeah. broadly, right? So for for me doing this work, because I'm really a religious ethicist, so mm-hmm. the other hat I wear is in different societies okay. of religious ethicists, like the society of Christian ethics or the society of the study of Muslim ethics. 
those um, have been societies that have been really text driven. Right. Right. So even just thinking about how we study visual culture and everyday practice and material culture and how we theorize that has been yeah. sort of a challenge. And that work I've really found allies and, you know, other places in right. religious studies. There's a lot of exciting stuff, but like a lot of stuff is kind of in the next, like the last decade. So none yeah. of it was stuff that I was reading about or thinking about back when I was in grad school. So that's, you know, thinking about, particularly if you're, if you're someone like me who's interested in everyday practice yeah. and thinking about how do you, how do you like read visually mm-hmm. instead of yeah. read textually? Those have been really exciting conversations to have. And the U.S. context, I mean, actually, the, the new project I'm working on, there is a chapter focused on clothing, and I brought up the med exhibit because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, we're sort of having this moment in the U.S. where, like, religious clothing has gotten a lot of attention. I mean, the met exhibit, that mm-hmm. Heavenly Bodies exhibit, which is an exhibit, those who don't know, of Catholic-inspired mm-hmm. couture, basically, yeah. and also some things from the Vatican, about 40 pieces from yeah. the Vatican itself, is the, the exhibit had... Like 1.6 million visitors and more yeah. visitors than any other yeah. exhibit ever. It was huge. Ever at the Met. Like, right, you know, I went, it was like lines around the block and we're just and like. And it was physically like immersive. I mean, it took yeah. me hours to get through it and I went to the cloisters and it was. Yes. It was a pilgrimage. It It really was. You had to go on top of a mountain to get there. And the lighting is low, so you're kind of confused, and the music is loud, (laughs) the music is very dramatic. And it's a sort of like, so what's interesting is like who that drew in. But what's also interesting about the exhibit is I don't know how you felt about going through it. There wasn't a lot of context. Mm. So although there were beautiful pieces to look at, there wasn't a lot of filling out the history of them Mm. or the symbols that we saw Mm. there. Uh, and the Met Gala, which is like mm-hmm. the, the gala that opens it up where you have yeah. like Rihanna dresses, right. basically the Pope, and she's like so fabulous. But this sort of appreciation for that aesthetics, but maybe that's not coming with the understanding of, you know, there's been a religious community. You know, yeah, or, or some problematic pieces of it. So it's Robert Orsi wrote some great stuff about it. It's a very sort of sexy exhibit, lots yes. of this low cut, and like really the body is put forward, and it, it's coming at a time when we're in the middle of this big crisis, this yeah. big sex abuse crisis, and there's no conversation about that. Right in the exhibit so again i think that obviously people are interested in religious clothing they're like they you get them in the door of the mat to see it so again it becomes an opportunity to have more complicated conversations yeah. about religion that's sort of where i'm thinking about sort of going yeah forward. cool and you mentioned something you're working on so if you wouldn't mind maybe we can have a little, a little preview spoiler. or a little interesting yes i have a piece i have a book that's under contract again with harvard um, university press mm-hmm. which was wonderful to work with on pious fashion it really helped me push it think about pushing or writing for a different kind of audience yeah, yeah and making writing a different voice so i have a book under contract which is right now my working title is called um stealing your religion mm. and it's a book that comes out of frustration in my classroom sort of stilted conversations about cultural appropriation that um, students love, love that word and love that phrase, especially in terms of religious bar, um, racial, sorry, racial borings, like stealing things from white people, stealing things from black communities and black culture. They were using the word in addition, also in terms of religious um, sort of stealing, but not, it was sort of shutting down conversations type opening up. So this book is about the sort of ethical, muddy ambiguity good and bad of these sort of borrowings of a religion particularly by people who themselves are not part of those communities mm-hmm. so we're, we're moving in the u.s to a situation where the majority of americans are going to have no religious affiliation right they're going to be nuns and oh and yes right not 
Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought there's actually something really interesting for me to think about this because I actually am myself. I mean, this is probably too much information, TMI, but I myself baptized Catholic, but I'm not a practice. I've mm-hmm. been practicing since I, you know, was in, my, in the household like 10. Yeah. Um, so I'm a non-religious affiliated person who has made a career out of studying religious communities. Right. Um, so that's kind of weird. I also... Same, my, by the way. Almost yeah. exactly. And it's sort of interesting to think about that yeah. and think about the positionality of that and what that and what that the politics of that. And so this is a book that kind of goes through different different things that I have a lot of experience with. So for example, I take students on a pilgrimage to Spain every okay. year as part of a study abroad program. We do the Camino. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking mostly non Catholics on a Catholic pilgrimage as part of a course. And the majority of them have this life changing experience, even if they're not religious. Okay, so what is that like? What, how is that? Why are they like? What are they trying to get out of an experience as a quote unquote non believer, mm-hmm. as an outsider? How can they? What are they searching for? How do they understand this sort of spirituality versus religion sort of divide that people just assume is a truth? What is that really? So this book is like looking through different kind of case studies, and I'm kind of I sort of say I'm kind of doing all the icky things and then thinking about them, right? So I'm sort of stealing I'm stealing <laughs> your religion and trying to like unpack it and problematize a little bit, and that audience. That is really a book written for white women. Like, right, we're hearing about the problem of white women. I want to think about, especially about, like, if I am a character in that book, I'm sort of thinking about particularly white women moving through these spaces and sort of the ethics of that. Yeah, I was thinking about when you mentioned that. So obviously that project is pretty contemporary, right? Yes, yes. As is um, pious fashion. But then I was thinking about even if I consider examples from that med exhibit or just other ones where you see – Elements of covering, such as habits, such yeah. as other forms of veils. You know, Mother Mary is you know, presented as yeah. wearing a veil. Those aren't problematized as much as this abject reaction that comes sometimes with Muslim forms of covering. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting when you sort of track a historical trajectory of different forms of covering up. Yeah. And then now that mainly one culture seems to be focused on as the one that covers up, there's more of an adverse reaction or something. I, or right. at least I think, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so again, part of my annoyance of, not my annoyance, my resistance of writing this last book was that, oh my gosh, there's so much scrutiny on Muslim women yeah. and so much attention to what they're wearing. And this book in some ways is part of that conversation, yeah. right? It's like, I'm also or adding to that problem rather, yeah. right? Like I'm also scrutinizing and looking at women. I'm hoping that because they are really pushing the research and their voices are really pulled out, you also see how they themselves are involved in like surveilling mm-hmm. each other and scrutinizing each other. And they're part of that mechanism. You know, I think in my classroom, my students are usually really shocked to find out that the veil is not a big deal in Muslim communities until mm. like in Egypt, until yeah. the British decides a big deal. Yes. Right. Exactly. And sort of seeing how it's like, Oh, it's, it's their fault. Like it's not, you know, and it's, <laughs> you think, or the British come in, they're like, basically this veil is a problem. It's a sign of Islam that you're not the same of us. We're going to take it off. And then like Muslims being like, Whoa, you want us to take it off? We're going to put it back. So like that interaction yeah. is usually a wake up moment for my students. So yeah, we are in a, I mean, we're in a really kind of exciting, interesting moment, right? Yeah. Where we have, our first represent, elected representative heading to Congress. Yeah, yeah. But I don't the, I don't know if you've um, seen this yet, but this, this week or this week it just broke that one of the first things the Democrats are doing is changing a rule, a 181-year-old rule that's on the books for what you can wear on the House floor. It says you can't wear hats. So in order for her to make sure she feels like she can walk in the first day, they're going to change. So, like, we're in this – Interesting yeah. moment where, like, okay, I'm sorry, Muslims are mainstream in America, yeah. right? Like, 
we're at this interesting moment where it's really showing us these sort of structural structural racism and structure, structures of religious discrimination that we still yeah. have, like, you know, on the books. Yeah, there's so many examples. I mean, you know, throughout the history of the places that you've studied the, of Turkey and Iran specifically, hats, oh my gosh, yeah. such a big deal. Yes. Um, putting them on, taking them off, yes. putting on the tie, taking yes. off the tie. Yeah. So the clothing is where those decisions um, about modernity and about culture are being negotiated. So yeah. it makes complete sense to have a book like Pious Fashion. I think, to do some of that work. And um, I've found it works really well in the classroom. And I'm sure you found as well that for your students, um, they're reacting really well to the work. Right? So my, yeah, my favorite thing to hear is that it's working well yeah. in classrooms, right? It's, that is like the greatest compliment, right? Yeah. That you can like pay me because I really, I was trying to write in my teacher mm-hmm. voice. And I was trying to like, the way I teach is a lot of stories. And yeah. so I was trying to tell the stories and let the women tell their stories. Right. And I just think the more storytelling we do in general in the classroom and in our writing. It's very effective in terms of shipping perspectives. Oh, I mean, another thing that I think that's happening right now that's really interesting or sort of showing, like, again, this like, I'm going to see change in the US right now. The NYPD is being sued by a bunch of different Muslim women for mm-hmm. being, basically having their headscarves ripped off for um, mugshots. Mm-hmm. And again, there's no reason why you, a hair, I mean, my hair wasn't this color a couple <laughs> years ago, and it might not be, you know, like, hair is not a distinguishing yeah. feature. Cool. Well, um, I think this was super helpful. Um, hopefully, people have gotten a bit about Pi's fashion and would check out your book. Any other final thoughts for us? <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks for this. This was really fun. Even though we should, we should confess, we were literally sitting on the yeah. floor. We might take a photo set. just to let everybody yeah. know. We'll put it out there, but we are sitting on the floor. It's very empty. Yes. Yeah, we're going to go back and keep conferencing. Yeah, that's right. We're going to keep conferencing. In our so, conference gear. Yes, in our modest our conference gear. Pious, there's pious fashion everywhere. And what counts yeah. as pious fashion here is, yes. Is yes. old suits. Um, anyway. <laughs> Some right. shoes and old suits. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Liz. You know, I was thinking that it's very different nowadays than when we started off. When we were introducing interviews, it was always one of us that had recorded and sometimes both of us, or we'd both been involved in, in some way with me editing it or mm. and you writing the page and everything else. And now, of course, it's it's people from around the world that we only know through this and we, we get these interviews and we're hearing them uh, the same as the listener is. It's a nice surprise for us. We, we you know. <laughs> Well, we do, we do have a bit of editorial. Well, uh, sure, but, yeah. but you know, it's a diff- it's a it, we're discovering things more like the listener is now. I think exactly, is it is fantastic. So, thanks so much to Candice. We hope we will get some more interviews from you. And uh, next week, we've got a well, we've got a couple of returnees to the RSP. So, Chris Black, who's been doing a, a series of interviews for us of late. This is the third that she recorded at the Triple SR. It's about the the landscape of atheism and non-belief. And it's with none other than Chris Silver. Our old pal Chris Silver, yeah. Good to have him back on the show. Um, He um, began, well not, I mean he he obviously began back in the day somewhere in Tennessee, but he began on the RSP as as an interviewer and um, quite a few of our first couple of years podcasts were produced by him he's written responses he's been in video episodes he's been a he's been in one of our our discourse recent episodes he's been a, a trailblazer for us and a, a real trooper so we're glad to have him getting to speak about 
um, some of his own research. I have committed to write a response to that as well. I imagine you're looking forward to finding out what you're going to write as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So Excellent. We'll see. <laughs> we were just saying just now, we're looking at the schedule coming up. Scheduled into May, we've only got a few more slots to fill and they're filling up quickly. But we're also looking ahead to the various conferences that are happening over the summer. Um, looks like we're going to have a, a lot of activity at the EASR, which is great, with lots of friends and colleagues on the continent there. So that'll be exciting. We haven't talked about the NAASR, but luckily we've got all these new interviewers in North America, so I'm sure something will happen there. Triple SR, I hope we get somebody back there again next year. That's a, a conference we don't have a lot of other contact with, I guess. It's not our field. And BASR, of course, in September, which I've yet to really think about, but, mm -hmm. but that's coming. It is coming. Wow, yeah. I think we've still got a couple of months to even think about abstracts and things for that. So, But we will be recording our Christmas special there, of course, oh, as, as ever. Always. Uh, yep, indeed. That's, you know, from sort of, well, I was going to say the end of March, but this is the beginning of April, David. Yep. <laughs> yep. Sp spring is here. Yeah, just start on you go, folks. So go out and enjoy the sun, or, or if there's no sun, don't. Yeah, enjoy the rain. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Hold up. 